Hello, and welcome to 52 Weeks of Health Equity. I'm your host, Tahisha. I am so happy today to have the privilege of chatting with S. Hodelmoser, who will be talking about breaking barriers, health equity, being a self-employed artist, the joy of circus performing, the challenges of being viewed as different, and also what it's like to have intersecting historically marginalized identities and that experience when it comes to access to health. So as for our part two of this, I would love if we could talk a little bit about the project that you've been working on, Barbette, um, how you actually maybe got interested in circus, perhaps how your intersections and your different pieces of identity impact your work and you know how you see yourself in the world. And so I would love if we could explore maybe those things. I think I got interested in circus. I mean, I, I love athletics. I love using my body to tie this back into some of the health stuff we've been talking about in terms of like gender affirming care or trans identity. I, um, I can talk about my identity or my experiences of transness around um, notions like euphoria and dysphoria. Those are, I think, like pretty like buzzy words at the moment, right? If you experience gender dysphoria, it's because something's mismatched for you in your life and there's things that you could do to try to make that better. Um, some of it doesn't require a healthcare context, although it still comes up. So using somebody's uh, name that they've chosen for themselves or a different name than what's legally on their documentation, uh, referring to them with different pronouns, of course, is like a very contentious one right now, but also a super easy one. Uh, all the way to some of the other things that we've discussed around gender affirming care that do involve medical intervention, um, which doesn't make somebody more or less trans, but that's like part of the whole world of options there, right? Um, I don't really feel, I've never really felt um, like dysphoria or euphoria were strong driving factors in the decisions I've made for myself as a trans person to feel better in my body. Um, and I would say like around the time that I was kind of figuring out that I was trans, which was pretty late, um, compared to like what a lot of folks figure out about themselves now, thanks to like greater visibility of transgender people online and just easier access to information on the internet. Like there's so much anxiety and stress and negativity in the news about like kids and teens who are trans and seeking gender affirming care which for the record for kids and teens, most of the time is what you could just call social transition. It's the names and the pronoun thing. It's cutting your hair, it's wearing different clothes. Maybe it's puberty blockers, but it's not like major surgeries. I don't want to totally go down that tangent because it's a little bit off topic from what we want to talk about here. But uh, I feel the most euphoria when I'm doing things with my body. So it's not about like what my body looks like necessarily, although yes, being on testosterone has been a life-changing and life-saving aspect of my like healthcare journey. Um, having top surgery was life-saving surgery for me. Nonetheless, um, I think circus probably defines my life more than those things do. And uh, I maintain like a curiosity and like, as much as I can, like a gentleness towards like the fluctuating ability that comes for all of us, whether you are a non-athlete or like an elite circus artist, because like my uh, 
I did my undergraduate degree with a specialization in disability studies um, under the equity studies umbrella at the University of Toronto. And so I spent many, many years like picking apart all the different ways that we construct these fallacies of normalcy around what a body should look like and how it should move and how a brain should think and how we should communicate or how someone locomotes or like all of these things, right? And that extends to circus stuff. So I got drawn to circus because I was like, wow, I can do these things with my body. It's like a concrete, small, stepwise thing where I can achieve one thing after the other. But when you mix that in with the performing art itself, so not just the training of circus, but that key element that I mentioned a few minutes ago about risk and spectacle, that combination of risk and spectacle with like a difficult task or physical virtuosity, there's a slider scale spectrum there that we could pick apart if we were going to do a podcast just about circus, but we're not. it, we could. We could. My God, we could. Um, basically, the elements of risk and spectacle, I think, create like heightened emotional, not value, but like they create the potential for a heightened emotional experience, which as a viewer can lead to like a stronger affective, like with an A, affective response. So like you get full goosebumps. Or if you're watching something scary, you're, you're like in a full sweat. Like, please get down from there. Like, get down from the high wire. I don't want to see you fall. Like, you feel things so strongly as an audience member when you're watching a good circus performer in a way that maybe if you're not like really sensitive or really into it, maybe you don't feel it when you're watching a dancer or when you're at a symphony orchestra. Um, For me, if I sit in a symphony, I can sit at the orchestra and there's just something about like the physical instruments and the vibration that happens in the room when the whole orchestra is playing that like I have like incredibly strong physical reactions to it which I think is also autism and I think it's a really beautiful part of my autism because it is a euphoric experience um and if I think about like old-timey descriptions of like artists and poets or musicians talking about like being touched by God or an angel visiting them or like these you know like epiphanies happening I'm just like I don't know I'm just I I feel like you can look at these but moments this being is described. why we need art this yes. is why we need to fund art because there is this visceral reaction to the creation of something. Yes. It is almost like watching someone give birth to a child. Like it is so, it is so special. And you know that a performance is singular in that moment. Yes. Like even if you play it exactly the same, like at the orchestra, there are slight differences yep. from Fridays to o'clock a po- you know, performance to the eight o'clock performance. Yeah. And it, and that is, I think the beauty of like performing something and even recordings, like there is, there's just something magical about that versus, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just got so like, Yeah. And it's different for each person. Right. So like, I, maybe I feel incredible, like full body shivers when I go to the orchestra because something is like tickling my brain just right. And that's how my brain is wired. But somebody else might be like, Oh God, please put me out of my misery. How long is this symphony? I quit, you know, um, it's fine. Like not everybody has to like live classical music. The circus, I think for a lot of folks can be like a big equalizer with a good performer because that element of risk and spectacle immediately like forces you to be present with that performer. Um, and as an artist, 
that opens up a lot of possibilities to create like connection and meeting with an audience. If you're looking at that as like a material that you're working with. So like, em like emotion is the material that you're attempting to manipulate. Like if you're a mixed media artist and you're like, I work with gouache and acrylic and oil. It's like a circus artist is working with their body. The body is the material and the apparatus, but there's these unseen elements as well that go into creating a performance that is going to elicit an intense physical or emotional response from an audience member. And that could just be for entertainment to transport you and take you away from all the mundane insults of everyday life, the nine to five job and your boss that sucks and the days that blur together and feel the same, like there's something really valuable about having art that takes us somewhere else and makes us feel things. Um, there's also the opportunity to create like dialogues and commentaries that have more power than they would in a different medium. So with the project that you found um, as a short recap, I, during the pandemic, got really into circus history. I was reading a lot about the history of circus sideshow and freak show because there's a lot of intersections there in terms of like disability history and performance arts and stuff like that. Like, I'm just interested in that. And I ended up stumbling across an account of a really old circus performer who was named Barbette, who was super famous in the 1920s and early 1930s in, in Europe. So she performed in Paris and Germany and Spain and stuff like that. She was from Texas and grew up like learning how to do tight wire, like taught, taught themselves like high wire on their mom's clothing line in the backyard in Round Rock, Texas, and ended up becoming a big circus star like overseas um, during the Roaring Twenties. And Barbette would do this act at the Moulin Rouge and music halls and cabarets and stuff like that in Europe, um, where Barbette would come out like in this massive like explosion of ostrich feathers, like opulent gowns and do like little strip teases in between doing a bit of stuff on high wire and on rings and on trapeze. And at the end of the act, Barbette would like come forward to thunderous applause. Like she was real famous, real popular and like tear off a wig. And the whole audience was like oh, a man the whole time. And Barbette would like do these like muscular poses and pretend to like swing a golf club and like kind of ham it up and like break this illusion of like effortless grace and femininity that, had made everyone fall in love with the performance just a few scant moments ago. And I mean, from a queer history perspective, I thought it was fascinating because um, we are living in the time where everyone associates drag perform. Well, oh my God, until a year ago, drag was just associated with RuPaul. In this moment that we are having this podcast, drag is associated with intense legislative uh, efforts and scrutiny and misinformation and vitriol. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, there's just a small segment of uneducated individuals who are telling a tale of mistruth, um, that a large segment of the population here has bought into. It's, it's in Canada as well. We have people protesting drag story times and behaving in uh, ways I wish they wouldn't. But to go back to Barbette a hundred years ago, the kind of language that we use to talk about our experiences evolves. Um, and so people weren't calling that drag. Um, maybe it would have been called female impersonation, but even then like what Barbette, what Barbette was doing was taking it beyond that to a level that people were just writing about. They were writing essays about the nature of art and illusion, and like creating photographic essays about Barbette. Like it was really a big deal. And I was like, huh, I, at the time that I discovered Barbette, I think I had just had top surgery, but I hadn't started 
hormones yet. Um, and like taking testosterone was never something that I thought I was going to do. Um, it wasn't like part of me being like, oh, when I'm when I'm old enough and when I can get access through my doctors, like I can't wait to do it. Like it was something I was very hesitant and unsure about for a really long time. Um, and at that point I hadn't started. And I was like, oh, I wonder how an audience would interact with like this narrative or act structure in the context of like the 21st century. So 100 years later, because now we have a lot of like social association of like drag meaning a certain thing. But I'm like, what would it mean for a trans body to be exploring this kind of like narrative structure where you have this like layering of gender performance in relation to risk and spectacle as it occurs through acrobatic vocabulary and circus? Um, I ended up writing a grant. I ended up getting the grant and I ended up I've been working on this project for the last couple of years and recently finished an eight minute aerial straps act with a lot of costume changes and some really beautiful which music. Which is amazing. Thank you. Amazing. Um, which is mostly just hiding on Patreon at the moment. I'm feverishly editing together a short film version of it and a trailer of it that'll go out publicly eventually soon, I hope. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was curious to explore basically the same kind of concepts in the context of like the world I'm living in as a trans person in the 21st century. And I was open to it flopping. I was like, maybe maybe there's nothing to find here. Maybe it's just like, okay, so it's a trans person doing it. Who cares? But it becomes like there's associations that we have with gender in terms of like circus performance, just in the way that we have associations with gender in a healthcare context where it's like, if I ask you for what I want and you think I'm a woman, I'm demanding. But if I tell you what I need and you think I'm a man, that I'm just being efficient. And with circus, it's like... If you see this kind of body, you expect a certain kind of movement quality. If you see that kind of body, you expect a certain kind of style or level of tricks or whatever it happens to be. Like there's so much that we read onto the body based on like visual cues, either from something static and not moving or the way that a body is moving through space. So I, so I have seen the performance of you. Um, what's interesting is how you take your body through what are very, um, I don't want to say they're not strong actions, but they're more feminine actions or like how you, how you, how you are able to convey, here's the feminine side of it. And then the very, ma like the very masculine side, which is the strength we expect of men, right? Mm -hmm. Like when they're doing certain movements. And so that was interesting to see that shift, like to see, and I, I don't want to give it away, but you know, there's both that duality. And then how does the body display that? And I didn't really think about it until I read some of your notes about the original performer mm -hmm. and how, you know, that would be important, right? Because as a society, we think of men and women in this binary very differently when we think about strength. That we have different ideas around that. And then Absolutely. I started wondering, like, and that was why I, I think I emailed you like, oh, I want to, like, can we talk about this? I started wondering, how do you, as you are transitioning through wherever your journey ends you on the yeah. gender, <laughs> like, is, spectrum. Um, how do you like as a trans person then kind of go and morph back and forth 
because we often think like it's one journey, one way. And like, you know, as a creative artist, like being able to hold both of those containers, I found fascinating. Um, and maybe, you know, and that was just, you know, watching the performance and thinking like, wow, like so seamless. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, for, for viewers who don't want to be patrons or haven't seen it yet, um, whenever you're listening to this podcast, I'll just say broadly that I'm, I'm very feminine presenting at certain parts in the act and then very masculine presenting at certain parts in the act. Some people could say that I look very androgynous at other parts in the act. Like it really is in the eye of the beholder, which is something that I guess at this point in my career, I could say is a common thread in the work that I create. So this is also present in other acts and projects that I've done prior to my Barbette project. But um, as a performer, and I think my autism helps me here in terms of black and white thinking and pattern recognition and um, mimicry and echoing, like all of that stuff. Mm. I, as a performer, I'm like, how do I walk as a woman? How do I walk as a man? How do we hold our faces differently? How do we gesture differently? How do we show affection differently? How do we flirt differently? Like you break it down so that you can recreate it, which is what an actor does or some actors do, I guess. I don't know. Like I said, I didn't do theater. <laughs> I'm just winging it. But um, you're doing a good job. <laughs> thank you. But like as autistic people, like we do this as well. We were talking about this earlier. Like you, there's this like floating above ourselves, watching ourselves go to the grocery store or talk to a clerk or whatever it is where you're like, did I do it right? Is that how a normal person would do it? Um, like combining all of that together, I think in terms of like trying to analyze, like how do I convince you in this moment that I'm a woman or how do I convince you in this other moment that I'm a man comes down to like breaking down what the performativity of that is. And as we mentioned earlier, that comes down to cultural and social contexts. So that would be very different here for me in Toronto than it might be in Rome, Italy, or Hamburg, Germany, or like whatever, right? Um, and time also actually makes a massive difference. So like Barbette happened to come into her celebrity. I mean, Barbette, first of all, Barbette was a man whose real name was Vander Clyde Broadway, which does not sound like a real name. Um, so Vander was a young man and like as far as we can tell lived life as a as a man as a very effeminate gay man um and there were trans people at the time that barbette was performing but but vander broadway or barbette i'm just going to say barbette um had a very like clear division between like an on-stage persona of barbette and then living as a man in the rest of his life um although there was there was challenges to that living in the 1920s, 1930s as well, that I'll circle back to in a moment. Uh, but Barbette trying to be a beautiful woman in the 1920s on stage, like that worked because the aesthetic for women at the time in the places that Barbette was performing, which is to say Europe and England, was the flapper aesthetic. So like very, very flat chested and no hips and short hair. And so it's like if uh, prior to that, there is actually a robust tradition of female impersonation in traditional circus. So during the golden age of circus from the 1880s to the 1930s, female prefer female impersonation was quite popular. So you would have male acrobats wearing like corsets and like bustles and skirts and like full, like, you know, the whole shebang with like the big cage skirts and ruffles everywhere because, 
uh, it made it seem more dangerous to the audiences at the time. Although there's a, I'm, I'm going to avoid that tangent. I'm tempted, but this is today. Barbette wasn't the first person to do this. Um, as I came into doing this a hundred years later in 2023, at the time that I started it, having not been on testosterone and having had top surgery, I think I was about 30 pounds lighter then than I am now. So like testosterone does many things to the body. It's one hell of a hormone. And one of the things that it does is it often um, helps you put on muscle and training aerial straps in order to make my barbette act in conjunction with testosterone therapy meant that like my body was like, here's some muscles for you, kid. And so suddenly, like now, also my aesthetic appearance outwardly changed so radically that even over the course of this project, I had to course correct many times and be like, how do I convince you in this moment of the act that I'm a woman? How do I convince you in that moment of the act that I'm not a man? And it like it wrapped, it changed so quickly that it felt like I was standing on sand with like the water slowly washing it out away from under my feet. It wasn't this fixed quantity where I'm like, well, I know that I'm this wide here and that narrow here and I kind of look feminine if I stand like this and I look more masculine if I stand like that it's like it was always changing it's continuing to change and it also changes totally unrelated to me like I've touched on multiple points in our conversation where someone else's life experience someone else's expectations of femininity and womanhood and masculinity and manhood and beauty are totally like their own unique concoction from their parents and where they grew up and what they think is important and what they think isn't important and good things that have happened to them and bad things that have happened to them. And that has absolutely nothing to do with me, but it has so much to do with how they're going to experience me as a person. And as a performer, I get to play with that as a person cosplaying through life and sometimes ending up in healthcare settings. I'm still performing so that I can try to get good healthcare, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, to, to bring it back to Barbette, um, it's a performance that I imagine will continue to have to shift as I also continue to transition over time. Age is a factor that changes all of our perceptions around gender and health as well. So it's like people with connective tissue disorders tend to look younger than they are. Circus artists tend to look younger than they are. But it's like when I look older, will someone take me more seriously? If you think I'm a man, when I'm around other men, I'm not taken so seriously because they think I'm 16 years old. <laughs> Maybe not 16, but like 19, 20, nothing, you know, um, I don't have a lot of facial hair. The amount of facial hair I've started to grow because of testosterone therapy is like easily shaved. And I only have to do it every few days. Like I don't, I don't look like a man. You know what I mean? You if might that's have what to get one of those fake beards, like long one oh, God. <laughs> as you aged. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, anyways, all of this to say is that the Barbette Project has, like, it's reached a certain stage of completion, which is the app that you got to see on Patreon. But if I do get the opportunity to continue performing it over my career, which I, knock on wood, really hope I get to do, um, it's going to have to be a performance that continues to evolve, like, with my transition. And the project itself had to evolve as well. Like, something that I touched on in... Um, I think small pieces of work that I've shared on Patreon, maybe not at length, but I've at least been talking about this a lot with peers around um, the conclusion of this most recent part of my project was 
something that related to the end of Barbette's career. So I told you how it started. She was real famous in the 20s, hotshot, fancy clothes, lots of money. But Barbette's performing career as a soloist, who was like a, like a, imagine an A-lister celebrity today. That's the equivalent of what Barbette was in Europe 100 years ago. But Barbette, about 90 years ago, um, really couldn't get any more work in Europe and ended up returning to America, retired from performing, and had a different stage of life. Barbette actually ended up working as an aerial director for the Ringling Brothers, Barton and Bailey. But this coincides around something else going on in Europe. Exactly. So. Yes. Yes. No. And it actually ties which back to similar trans to, Yes. Which yes. is similar to when you're, I mean, not similar to when, but you are currently doing, you know, you're creating the show in this environment that is, let's put it out there, anti-trans. Okay. Like it is right now, yes. politically in the U.S., we're very anti-trans. And so that was... That the resi the resiliency of putting together this show in the context of everything going on in the world also resonated with me. Similar to I'm imagining Barbette towards the end putting on shows where it probably did not feel a hundred percent comfortable to be no. doing some of those things. No. So not for that you're not comfortable in the space that you No, no, I, to I totally follow. For, yes. for any listeners who are not connecting the dots, to be very clear, Barbette's career ended in the early 1930s with the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. So in 1932, Hitler flipped the switch and uh, was like, this is a dictatorship now. And then in 1933, this is something that I think is probably going to make its way into a larger, like longer length work around Barbette that when I've slept for five more years, I'll get around to making. <laughs> but um, there's a, a photo that was at least infamous in the history books that I learned from in high school. And I know when I chat to other Canadians of many ages, like generations above and below me, they're familiar with this image. I don't know if it's the same in the United States, but there's a famous image of the Nazis burning a pile of books. Is that something that you saw in your history books? Right. Okay. Yes. So, that. We don't talk about it as much in the U.S. because the U.S., for listeners, the U.S. is one of the major instigators of the way the Nazis did a lot of the things that they did. They learned from how the U.S. treated black people and <laughs> how they segregated. So mm. I want to throw that out there. We don't often own our court, our history with Nazi Germany and how we influence them. Mm. So which is like slightly different. I know that our textbooks tend to gloss over a lot of things. Yes, the way that we still talk about World War II and fascism is as if it started in the 1930s with Germany. And it's like they learned from, there was, there was a couple chapters before that got ripped out of the yes. book, right? Yes. But that photo, that famous photo of the Nazis burning those books, those books were from a very specific library, which if the listeners don't know, um, those books were from the library of a doctor named Magnus Hirschfeld, who was a very liberal Jewish gay doctor living in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. And Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld um, gained some small amount of recognition because he started um, an institute that researched sexuality and gender. So the Magnus Hirschfeld Institute, I, I think it was in Berlin. I need to fact check that. If I'm incorrect. Sorry. Uh, but 
basically in the 1930s, the Nazis came in um, to that institute and they burned all of those books. And what was in the library of the Hirschfeld Institute was case studies and medical records and surgical innovations and like just countless invaluable texts on queer history of gay people and of trans people. So some of the earliest sexual reassignment surgeries were performed at the Hirschfeld Institute or researched there. And the Nazis were like, yep, nope, that's not good. Let's burn that. And so like that was happening in 1933. That photo was taken in 1933. That's when they raided that institute and burned that library. And it was specifically because it had to do with gay and trans people. And they were like, this is perverse and it's deviant and we can't have it. And this is like literally what we see echoing out now, 90 years later. So when I started this project around Barbette, it was honestly like so, like so much more heavily focused on like performativity and curiosity around like, what is it that makes you think I'm a man or a woman? And how does that change from moment to moment on stage in the way that I experience in my day to day life as a trans person? And then in the midst of this project, like you said, it's like the world slipped sideways and suddenly things are very explicitly fascist and increasingly going that way in many states in the United States. And I know there's, I know for a lot of my American friends, there's definitely a conception that Canada is, uh, I don't know, a liberal progressive bastion to the North, but this is definitely a misconception. Um, and, and I would agree with you 100% because what scares me about the U.S. is we often set the tone for other countries. Yes. And I want to be really clear that what is happening in the U.S. should not be replicated other places. We are not doing well from many perspectives. Like, we are not the people to mimic. So for all of those in the EU and Canada who want to, like take on some of the things like I've even heard that from a healthcare perspective, some countries see us as having some uh, like replicable things with our healthcare. Our healthcare is terrible. Don't mm -hmm. move away from your socialized healthcare to our model. It's not great. Yeah. So, there's a risk of that happening in my province. Our premier is heavily trying to push towards a privatized model. And it's just like, Oh my God, please privatized healthcare is not it, it doesn't help anyone. No. Who it helps is your richest in your yes. in your in your uh, in your country. And so, one of the things that I thought was so important because there were so many parallels was to talk about this story because I hate to say history repeats itself. It is repeating but itself. Yeah, it seemed like wow, this is like such a parallel. And then here you are performing <laughs> like this peace well the, the, no. the continuing no, no, no. irony <laughs> is that i might not get to perform this piece just like barbette stopped performing because this project has reached a point of it's not concluded so i mean what remains is um putting out the short film that i put around it and then um you have to like make a, a book of like collected essays and photos and stuff around it which is what i did for like my my other projects that i've done for grants so like I have non-performance related work left on my project, but like I have made a very like explicitly queer work of art in a time when the world is swinging violently right. And I'm like, I don't think producers are going to want to put this on stage. That's okay. Um, 
we'll see what happens in future. But like, it's just not something that I predicted when I started this project in the same ways that like, I didn't predict that I'd have to change how I approach and craft performances of masculinity and femininity as it relates to my transitioning body, my aging body, my whatever, right? There's also like this shifting sociopolitical landscape that is increasingly fascist and increasingly hostile towards trans bodies. And uh, I found myself kind of in the middle of that with my Barbat project. And I imagine it's going to continue that way for some time. Um, yeah, I think in terms of my Barbet project at this point, it feels almost like, um, like a lighthouse that I've built. And I'm just like looking out at the world from like this perspective where I initially I wanted to be like, here's a little piece of queer history. There was someone who was playing with these concepts a hundred years ago. It's not some new deviant perverse thing. Like even if you've somehow escaped awareness that there's so many other like cultures around the world that have had multiple genders and much more expansive notions around like human existence beyond a binary notion of men and women. There's lots of that. Even if you're like, no, or you have a viewpoint that is still influenced by like white supremacist or fascist ideals. And you're like, but those are backwards cultures. Like, even if you dismiss it like that, it's, which you shouldn't, I shouldn't have to say that, but just in case. Um, the work is important. The, the ideas are important to get out there. So even if even if listeners are like, this is not the part that I'm tuning in for, um, listen anyways, because you may, you know, you may expand your mind. And these, these ideas have existed prior to 2023. Thank you. Like, yes, drag is not going to make a child like this whole idea that one's sexuality, one's gender can be changed from imagery is such a false, like if anything, if that was true, if that was true be straight, we would have so <laughs> many more giant straight. pandas in the world. Those things Ooh, just yes. don't want to reproduce. It doesn't matter how much <laughs> you interfere. They're just not about it. They have done so much of trying to show pandas like, panda porn to like be like this is what you should do i'm not joking i wish i was they tried literally playing videos for the pandas being like this is what you need to do and the pandas now, are everybody's like, gonna look up panda sex now maybe look up panda research videos on youtube so that we don't get into a corner of the internet we don't want to go <laughs> yes, to like we didn't, don't go there but like basically you cannot you cannot because i i know i grew up with very heteronormative films and yeah, like 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 a very a very a culture of you know gender looks a certain way mm -hmm. and i i won't i won't I won't say that there is some evidence that people who are autistic also don't really see gender in the same oh, yeah. way or have know, the true. same concepts. But if that were the case, then everyone who isn't autistic would also not be like, you know, if there, the idea that gay people exist, lesbians exist, like non-binary trans people, like they existed before all this imagery, mm -hmm. like that doesn't influence how you end up. No. like. 
So it's just fascinating that there's a small segment that really feels like this is going to be the changer for some child somewhere. And most of the time, I don't even think like when I think back on my childhood, I probably didn't wasn't really thinking about sex until much later or my sexuality or my gender until much later. Like it was society that started me thinking about sex because society sexualizes everything. Yeah. (laughs) But like on my own, I definitely was not. Yeah. I was like, like I I just wanted people to like be friendly to me. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Very relatable. I was exactly so. the same. Yeah. 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 I think people were a lot more, con- I mean, just thinking back to like being a kid, people were much more concerned with my sexuality than anything else. And I was like, but why? Like it just, it literally like nothing, there was nothing there for me. I'm like, I just want to read books. I don't think I dated till I was like 17. And like, I think people thought maybe there was something wrong with because like it just I wasn't you know I wanted to do my whatever it was enough to take in society (laughs) like without that other piece so now people know too much about me um but uh your 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 piece Barbette is just it's just beautiful and I I really want people to see it and it just in the context of history and what we're going through right now, it just yeah. seems so fitting Yeah. Um, because a lot of things are repeating yes. that we saw in the 20s and 30s and shifts in, you know, and I don't want us to, we, yes, we're entering a time of fascism, but we don't need to. Let's learn from history. And I think yes. it's one of those beautiful things that um, if we take a look at that piece and be more accepting around the diversity of art and, you know, we can grow from that. Um, so we have talked for so long. We've talked for two hours. Um, yes. yes, we have. And I know we did not intend to set out Oops. to do that. Um, so I, I'm going to have some links for listeners to be able to find your work and to um, kind of uh, connect with you. But is right. there any other like very important, pertinent thing you just want to like end on or have or share with them? Before I would say out. that if there's any healthcare providers who are tuning into this or folks who like are in any kind of um, vocation field of work that has you like interacting with um, trans populations at least, or like hypermobile humans or artist athletes, so rhythmic gymnasts or figure skaters or dancers or whatever. Um, in terms of a resource, I can't, I really can't say enough about Dr. Jen Crane, who you can find online at Cirque underscore physio. And the Cirque part is spelled in the French way. Uh, so C-I-R-Q-U-E underscore physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O. Um, I'll give Tahisha all the links so that you can go in the show notes. But Jen uh, is an incredibly talented and whip smart healthcare provider who has specialized in a couple of really unique areas um, with gender affirming care and trans athletes, with hypermobile athletes, and then with circus bodies, which even if you're a biomechanics nerd or a health nerd, like we're looking at bodies that have become specialized in such mind blowing ways that you're like, I didn't know that was possible. You do what with what body part? Um, so Jen's page is a wealth of fabulous information and she's got tons of um, resources linked for free in her bio on Instagram as well and through her webpage. So whether you're looking for like provider to provider education or trying to find a provider who might be specialized in a unique way for like a patient or a loved one that you know, um, as it relates to some of the stuff that we've maybe touched on in our chat today, um, 
Dr. Jen Crane would be somebody that I sing the praises from the rooftops from, um, for anybody who is looking for uh, a much more qualified discussion of some of the things that I've rambled about today. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today, S. I had such a great time talking with you. There are a couple of different parts to this episode that we uh, recorded on 52 Weeks of Health Equity. So don't forget to give a listen to everything that S talked about with us. Just was so fantastic. And as always, please support our guests. Please support the podcast by sharing it, subscribing, and liking. We'll see you next time.